Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me is our guest today, Professor Eric Schwitzgabel. Eric is a professor of philosophy at UC Riverside, where he focuses on a bunch of different interesting topics from philosophy of mind to moral psychology, epistemology, and science fiction. And he also blogs at The Splintered Mind, which is one of my favorite philosophy blogs. Eric was actually a guest uh, on Rationally Speaking about a year ago, talking about the moral behavior of moral philosophers, or lack thereof. And he's returning now to discuss another topic entirely called crazyism. Eric, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what is crazyism? Um, well, let's uh, define a position as bizarre, just in case it's highly contrary to common sense, and a position as crazy, in my technical sense of the term, just in case it's highly com- contrary to common sense, and you're not epistemically compelled to believe it. Not epistemically compelled to believe it. Does that mean that there isn't a good uh, there isn't good evidence or argument supporting it? There might be some good evidence, but not enough to compel belief or bring you all the way to rationally justified high level of confidence in the position. Okay, so that's so, crazy. So that would be for a position. Okay, so if there can be, just to clarify the terms just a little bit more, this is all just technical terms that I invented. Um, so a position is bizarre if it's contrary to common sense, but some bizarre positions we're epistemically, epistemically compelled to believe. So, for example, um, the twin paradox in relativity theory seems like there's excellent scientific evidence that uh, if one twin is traveling at a high velocity relative to another twin and then turns around and comes back, the traveling twin will have aged less than the untraveling twin. Mm -hmm. Now, to someone who hasn't been trained in the field as a non-expert, this seems, uh, this is highly unintuitive, Mm -hmm. but we now have very good scientific evidence for that. So that would be a bizarre position that was not crazy in my sense. Because it's not dubious, because Because there's no evidence for it. Great. Right. It's not dubious. Right. right? So, yeah. So the dubious is another term that I'm using technically. A position is dubious just in case we're not epistemically compelled to believe it. So these are just all just my vocabulary for talking about this. Would you say that the concepts of bizarre and dubious sort of map onto the Bayesian concepts of of having a low prior on something and having low evidence for something, respectively? Like we have... Like before any evidence, before we get right. any evidence at all, we should put very low probability on something uh, being true if it's uh, if it seems bizarre. Um, but if we and if we we don't have very strong evidence for it, then then it's dubious. Yeah, I think that's probably a reasonable translation. I'm not sure I'd commit to that exactly. Okay, fair. Um, but uh, at least as a first approximation, uh, or and maybe as a you know a, a final translation, that would be fine. Okay. Um, Right. So a bizarre position would be one that, well, so I define bizarreness really, well, I don't define it in terms of priors, probably because I don't know what priors exactly are. <laughs> they seem to be, to work out differently in Bayesian. Sure. And I, I think it also gets a little complicated philosophically when we're talking about logical or philosophical arguments as opposed to empirical claims. So right. I think you're in, especially justified in, in uh, being hesitant to commit to that uh, definition right. here. So, so the way that I prefer to talk about bizarreness is, is that non-specialists would be highly confident that it's false. Perhaps implicitly, they might not have an explicitly thought about the issue before, but uh, right. so they maybe either they'll... implicitly or explicitly are, are confident that it's false. So maybe, maybe someone would, would officially defer to experts and say, okay, well, you know, the physicists say that, I'm not a physicist, so okay, but they, it still seems like intuitively impossible that it could be true but they're they're willing to defer to authority sort of uh uh at least at least explicitly yeah so that would be um bizarreness 
So right before Copernicus uh, won the day, right, the idea that the Earth moves through the around the sun would be would have been uh, bizarre, and also I think crazy in my sense uh, when it was first proposed. The, the evidence that Copernicus appealed to was probably not sufficient to uh, to compel belief that the Earth did in fact travel around the sun. Right. So so when Copernicus first proposed the position, or when Darwin Darwin first proposed the theory of na- evolution by natural selection. These positions were both contrary to common sense and dubious and so crazy. But then as eventually as scientific evidence came in, they lost first their dubiety and they became fairly bizarre. And then common sense, I think, can change over time. So it's now maybe no longer as strongly contrary to common sense, maybe not strongly, maybe not contrary to common sense at all to think that the earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around. Yeah, to some to some extent, I think common sense evolves and to some extent i think it just gets stretched out like my common sense has been stretched enough by things like like quantum mechanics that it's sort of more there's sort of uh, more room for for other things that i would have considered crazy to, to slip in for me to go well okay maybe i i mean <laughs> if quantum mechanics is true then right. god i just it's uh hard for me to reject anything or m- many things out of hand i otherwise would have Right. Quantum theory is a good example of a domain in which I think crazyism is pretty appealing. So um, there are various ways of interpreting what's going on with quantum mechanics. So there might be no collapse views in which the world is splitting into many worlds. Right. That's a common interpretation these days. There are also collapse type views in which the observation of a process causes the wave function to collapse Right, which is also, and both of those views seem pretty strange uh, by the standards of common sense. So uh, I think both of those interpretations are crazy in the sense that I've defined. Obviously, that doesn't mean only a clinically insane person would accept them, <laughs> but they're, you know, it's there's a there's a sense in which it's not too unfamiliar to say something like, well, it's it's crazy to think that the world is splitting into uh, uncountably many universes. So I don't think we're epistemically compelled to accept that interpretation of quantum mechanics. So we haven't actually defined crazyism yet. We've just defined crazy. Right. So then crazyism would be the view that um, something crazy must be true about a domain in question. So it would be defined relative over uh, relative to a domain, and then uh, you would be committed to crazyism if you're committed to the idea that something crazy must be true, right? That that whatever the truth turns out to be, some part of it must be crazy. Right. So, for example, there might be four different plausible approaches, maybe four broad approaches to quantum mechanics. Each of them is bizarre and dubious, um, but one of them must be true, you think, Mm -hmm. or alternatively, maybe something even more bizarre and dubious is true, right? But whatever the truth is, it's going to be something bizarre and dubious that is crazy, right? So crazyism about interpretations of quantum mechanics then would be, well, there are various options, but whatever the truth turns out to be, it's going to be something that's highly contrary to common sense and that we currently uh, don't have a compelling epistemic reason to believe. Yeah. When I when I read your description of crazyism, it reminded me of this quote from Niels Bohr. Uh, I don't remember who he was talking to, but uh, he said, we all agree that your theory is crazy. What we don't yet agree about is whether it's crazy enough to be true. <laughs> he sounds like a craziest yes. about whatever that topic was in, in physics. Right, yes. I think uh, crazyism is pretty plausible in certain cutting-edge areas of science. I mean, I think, so the way academic work sometimes goes is that, you know, kind of adventuresome people, intellectual adventurers, find themselves endorsing theories that are highly contrary to common sense and for which the evidence is less than compelling. And then they put the work into developing those theories. And eventually, if they're really successful, like uh, Copernican theory was, or like Darwin was, eventually uh, the scientific community comes around to them. Um, so kind of trying to chase down the crazy is uh, <laughs> an important academic task. So before we get into the reasons why we should expect crazyism to be true in certain domains, maybe we could just discuss uh, what other domains outside of, uh, outside of, say, physics do you think it might be reasonable to be a craziest about? Well, the one that I've thought about in most detail is the metaphysics of mind. So that's one, whether, uh, w- which is broadly the issue of 
what sorts of beings in the universe have minds, have conscious experiences, and how does how does having a mind relate to existing in the physical or material world, if the physical or material world exists? So that would be one domain where I think uh, uh, crazyism is pretty plausible. I've also been thinking about extending it to uh, ethics, uh, and so that's something that I haven't worked on in as much detail, but uh, I'd like to think about that also. Yeah. The uh, I, I've thought more about about moral philosophy than I and metaethics than I have about uh, the metaphysics of mind, and I've definitely I keep bumping up against these uh, these situations where I just I'm sort of forced to choose between unpalatable options or between mm-hmm. bullets that I have to bite essentially. Um, in fact, one of my favorite works of philosophy is a paper, a relatively recent paper by someone named Gustav Arrhenius, in which he uh, it's, it's a, a very rigorous, precise paper for philosophy. Um, and he basically lays out all of these seemingly common sense um, principles that we would want a moral system to have. Principles like, um, I, I may slightly uh, mis, misquote or misparaphrase some of these, but there were things like, uh, all else equal, adding more happy people to the world isn't bad. <laughs> and... Uh, and all else equal, making currently existing people happier isn't bad. And so he has a list of, of six or seven or so of these principles, um, each of which we just want to accept almost unquestioningly. It just seems self-evidently true. And then he shows rigorously that they're, they cannot all be true. There has got to be a contra- – you've got to give up at least one of them if you want oh. an internally consistent moral system. That's interesting. Yeah, I should check out that paper. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll send you it. You send me the, send me the paper. That would be awesome. Um, yeah. In fact, maybe we should link to it on the on the site. Um, but and there's a, a bunch of sort of more concrete, you know, philosophical, moral philosophy thought experiments that can arise out of this. Uh, that, that where like our intuitions sort of re- produce these paradoxical results. But Arrhenius's paper is a nice formalization of why we get these paradoxes. In right. uh, this is this is specifically in utilitarian philosophy. So if you're willing to abandon right. utilitarianism, maybe you don't have a problem. Right. But anyway. So in uh, in metaphysics of mind, what would be uh, are there specific questions in metaphysics of mind uh, where we're we're stuck between a rock and a hard place? Right. So I think there are some questions, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll give those in a minute. But first, I want um, maybe a general connection to the issues that you raise about metaethics, also. Mm-hmm. Right. So one. Just to bring out, I think, kind of, in my own way, what you said pretty explicitly already was, like, if common sense is incoherent in some domain, then it's not going to be possible to have a well-developed theory that respects every aspect of it. It's going to have to conflict with common sense in some respect. Yeah. Right? So I guess that, I think, might be true in moral theory. Although um, in moral theory, I think... It's a little hard to tell sometimes whether you have, in common sense, straight-up conflicts versus different criteria that edge against each other, that can be weighed against each other. Sort of like, uh, I, I value I value people right. having autonomy, and I also value people being happy. Sometimes those things right. conflict with each other, but that's not necessarily a logical paradox. Right, exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you're committed to exceptionalist principles... Uh, that sort cases differently, they can straightforwardly conflict with each other and then then create um, robust violations of common sense, I think. So that's that's one thing that I'm trying to think about with the moral theory case, uh, to what extent it's merely competing considerations that can be that can be weighed against each other versus outright contradiction in the folk psychological principles underneath. Yeah. I mean, I think with the, the reason it was possible for Arrhenius to do such a nice, clean job of showing inconsistency in utilitarianism is that utilitarianism just has this one thing that it's prioritizing, which is utility. It's a very poorly right. defined thing, but, you know, whatever, whatever the good thing that is, you know, happiness or flourishing or whatever you want to say, yeah. that there's just that one good that, uh, that utilitarianism is <laughs> right. trying to maximize in some sense. And it's just those words in some sense where you get into the tricky bits. So I want to ask you a question about this before we get into the metaphysics yeah. uh, side, which I've thought about more. But um, one interesting case that I uh, that I kind of puzzle about a little bit on the utilitarian picture is uh, 
the kind of um, hedonium case from Nick Bostrom. Do you know? Do you know this? I, uh, yeah, but why don't you explain for, so, for our listeners? Right. So just postulate that uh, hedonium is whatever substance or uh, structure it generates the most. I don't know, pleasure, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, with the fewest computational resources, right? So on a simple version of uh, consequentialism, uh, say a a pleasure-maximizing one, then it seems like the best thing to do would be to convert all of the mass of the solar system into hedonium. Mm -hmm. Even even the mass of the beings who uh, would want to use or enjoy the hedonium? Well, the hedonium would be whatever substance it is that's that is doing the enjoying, right? Oh, I see. I see. It's not right. Right. It's not a. Uh, it's not like a drug. It's just it's a, not a drug. A thing that itself experiences whatever whatever good we care about, like happiness. That's or right. Flourishing. So you might think of it as like an artificially intelligent being that's basically programmed to most efficiently have happiness, right? Mm-hmm. So on a kind of Bostrom hedonium case, then what you might want to do basically is convert the uh, entire solar system into one giant kind of orgasmic being, blob. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought, you know, that that doesn't seem very in accord with normal common sense values, and yet it's a pretty straightforward kind of way of, or not, not totally straightforward, but it's one way of thinking about if you accept certain premises about computation and maximizing uh, pleasure or whatever, right? It's, it's one thing you might think, wow, you know, from a utilit- certain kind of utilitarian perspective, the best thing to do, the best possible thing to do would be to just commit, you know, suicide of the entire system to create the, you know, the giant, you know, solar system-sized orgasmatron, right? So, <laughs> Orgasmoblob. Gra- Orgasmoblob, yeah, yeah, right? Um, so... So I think that's an interesting kind of case for thinking about the boundaries of common sense, right? So you might say, well, look, you know, I'm just going to take as a common sense supposition starting point that that's not what we want. You know, that's not the moral ideal, right? And then based on that, I'm going to make my uh, consequentialism less simple or less focused on, you know, simple hedonic pleasure or something like that, right? Because I don't want that case to turn out that way. Yeah. It's funny. In these in these cases, sometimes what one person intends as a reductio ad absurdum, like, well, X implies Y, and, you know, Y is clearly absurd, and therefore that shows a problem with X. Right. Um, another person will just say, like, well, I guess Y then, because X implies it. <laughs> There's this right. expression, uh, uh, one man's modus ponens is another man's modus tollens. Right. Which, yes. Yeah. It's two different ways yeah. to react to that. X implies Y. Right. So the, the I think the... Thing that happens once you think that common sense is no longer trustworthy as a basis for philosophical opinion is that you lose a little bit of a hold on that game, right? So you say, okay, well, yeah. look, this is highly contrary to common sense, higher, highly contrary to our cultural presuppositions, but now I don't know how much weight to give to the fact that this does violate in that in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as... Uh... I, I used to be really quite fascinated by paradoxes in moral philosophy, cases in which my moral intuitions strongly suggest X and also strongly suggest Y, and also my logical mind can see that X and Y are in conflict with each other. Um, and I still am sort of interested in those paradoxes, but I am a little less interested because I just thinking a priori about my moral intuitions and how they evolved... I sort of, I mean, they, my moral intuitions, human moral intuitions, were not programmed from the top down to be an internally consistent set of intuitions. They, they sort of, we have different intuitions that evolved in response to different pressures, um, and there was not a ton of of intentional coordination between those different intuitions. And so, right. just thinking about that system, you know, in, in in an outside view, you wouldn't expect that system to produce consistent judgments. And so I guess I've become a little less fascinated and, uh, and intrigued by cases in which I see these conflicts between my intuitions, because I sort of expect that to be the case. And, and I'm, (laughs) and I'm also a little more pessimistic about resolving, uh, those inconsistencies and sort of the best that I think I can hope to do is reach some kind of reflective equilibrium where I try to make whatever changes I need to my moral positions that produce 
rough consistency overall and require the least amount of of violence to what seems to be common sense to me. But I I allow that some violence to common sense will have to be done. I just want to minimize it, essentially. Um, So I'm not as sure about the reflective equilibrium thing. But um, up up until that point, you were the position you were expressing is very close to the kind of position that motivates me um, in thinking about crazyism, right? So, human beings, in thinking about minds and in thinking about morals, right? So, tracking back a little bit to the metaphysics of mind, right? Um, our intuitions, our common sense, evolved and was culturally selected in a range of environments for a range of purposes. And it doesn't, stepping back, you might think, well, you know, it's probably satisficing in whatever environment it was, it uh, emerged in. Where satisficing is finding, finding the solution that's good enough to work, but doesn't have to be the best. Right. So, and if we look at how intuition has fared in fields where we've had a chance to kind of test intuition against rigorous empirical evidence, right? It turns out that intuition, say physical intuition, is great for picking berries and putting them in baskets and throwing stones and that sort of stuff. But when it comes to the highly energetic and the tiny and the huge and the fast, right, it's a mess, yeah. right? So, um, so likewise, I think when we start stepping outside of the kinds of cases that we're really familiar with and thinking about unfamiliar types of cases, like artificial intelligence types of cases or alien mind type cases, or if we think about the possibility of beings with minds very differently, different from us, uh, that we could design uh, computationally, then the kind of culturally given and evolutionarily selected uh, processes that that get, give us our intuitions might not be expected to have anything very clear or high quality to say about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about this with respect to uh, mathematical or and sometimes logical paradoxes, which, in my experience, something like ninety-five percent of all of the all of all of the mathematical paradoxes out there involve either infinities or self-reference, and and something like infinity is just not that. Like infinities are not a thing that human brains would have had to deal with <laughs> as they were evolving, and so you know. It's, I mean, this is setting aside the question of whether infinity is even a coherent concept in itself, because if it's not, then this could explain why the paradoxes arise. But, but regardless, it's also true that our brains did not evolve to be able to uh, think well about infinity. And so, of course, things are going to seem counterintuitive to us. Right. And we evolved in an environment in which the only beings who are capable of linguistic thought of the kind of quality that we're used to as human beings are other human beings with forms similar to ours and with certain kinds of maximum capacities, right? So we did not involve in the context where there were uh, highly intelligent group intelligences or artificial intelligences. We did not involve in a context in which we might interact with a being who is capable of vastly more pleasure than we are or hugely more intelligent than we are. So our moral intuitions and our intuitions about the metaphysics of mind, are we might not expect them to transfer very well to those unfamiliar types of cases. Yeah. So this is kind of an a priori argument for crazyism, that we shouldn't, just knowing about our brains and how they evolved, we shouldn't expect there to be, uh, we should expect there to be domains in which uh, our, our common sense intuitions just don't. Uh, there isn't a a way to not conflict with them in some sense. Um, And then there's also more, I I think there's, you have other pieces of evidence pointing towards crazyism in some fields, right? Like, like the fact that, uh, that areas of physics and cosmology have continually generated crazy answers that have turned out to be correct where the dubiety has gone down over time. And so there's precedent for crazy solutions turning out to be correct. Right. 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 Yeah. So I think what we've seen in the history of science is often, especially when we're talking about the science of the very large and the very small and the very energetic, we've mm-hmm. seen things go from crazy to bizarre. Right. So right. basically all the common sense options get le- left behind centuries ago. Right. <laughs> and there are only bizarre options left. Right. Right. Um, I think there's a, so 
that's one good reason to think that an empirical reason just looking at the history of science to think that crazyism is, is likely true of the very large and the very small and the very energetic. Um, in metaphysics of mind, I think the argument is similar, although a little different, because in metaphysics of mind, we haven't got the kinds of consensus answers over time that we got in physics, right? We, we gave up geocentrism. We basically agree about relativity theory. Maybe if we can figure out how to reconcile it with quantum mechanics is still an issue, but right, we made progress in those things. It's not as clear that we've made that kind of progress in the metaphysics of mind. But there is a similar type of empirical argument, which is this, which is that in the history of philosophy of mind, every single well-developed view of the metaphysics of mind has been bizarre and dubious, right? So every single option that's been on the table, well-developed option, uh, is crazy, right? So (laughs) from an economic kind of market point of view, you'd think if it was possible to create a metaphysics of mind that accorded with common sense, then someone would have done it. Because surely the rest of us would, would go, oh, thank God, finally something that we can wrap fun. our minds around. <laughs> it might yeah. not be as fun as Leibniz or Nietzsche or whatever, right? But uh, you know, you'd think that some people would be attracted to it and it would be famous, right? Yeah. But in fact, um, every single, my contention is, and I've, I've argued for this in a paper, I'm, I'm willing to take on challengers, but it's hard to, somewhat hard to defend a universal claim. But my contention is, my challenge is... Uh, Every single theory that's been put forward uh, in the metaphysics of mind that's well-developed enough to commit on specific details like mental-physical causation and the scope of mentality in the universe, what sorts of beings have minds and what sorts of beings don't, every single theory is uh, bizarre, right? And that would include even, say, I think Cartesian interactionist dualism uh, and Thomas Reed's so-called common sense philosophy. Even those, when you start looking at the details of them, they uh, they are committed to pretty bizarre stuff. So I I do want to get into some of the examples of crazy theories and metaphysics of mind, but first I just want to ex- go a little deeper into this. We, we're we were kind of making this inference where we said, look, uh, a lot of these crazy theories in science have turned out to be correct, um, and we were we were drawing an arrow from that to say, therefore we should put higher probability on crazyism in in areas of philosophy like metaphysics. And I guess I'm not quite confident that that arrow is justified because it seems like the goals of science and philosophy are relevantly different, where uh, the goal of philosophy, you could say the goal of philosophy is to make sense of the world. And so if the answers that philosophy gives us seem nonsensical to us, then it hasn't really succeeded at that goal. Whereas there's no such constraint on science, right? The universe doesn't owe us a reality that we can understand or that makes sense. Um, here's a case where I think metaphysics of mind and morality might come apart again. I'm, I'm still inclined toward crazyism about morality, but I think the case is easier for metaphysics of mind here. And I think that there are metaphysical facts about what types of beings have conscious experiences, right? And just as with... Um, the physics, those facts might not be accessible to us. The universe does not owe us, as you say, an explanation or the ability to understand uh, or make sense of what sorts of weird alien beings or group consciousnesses or whatever uh, would be conscious or non-conscious, but there still would be facts about those. Um, so I think it, that we, the, there's license for some more skepticism in philosophy because we don't have the scientific tools, I think, uh, to detect phenomenology in quite the same way that we have the scientific tools um, in cosmology, at least for some of the cosmological questions. Um, uh, but I think there still is this realm of facts that's independent of us that we wouldn't necessarily expect common sense to be well-tuned to deal with. Now, in morality, I think it might be slightly different, right? And this is, again, why I'm a little hesitant about extending crazyism to morality. I, I, I'm inclined to think that I would at the end of the day. But one, one reason for hesitation here is, you know, you might think of morality as something constructed by us. Uh, and in that sense, right, um, we kind of make it so by accepting something in a way that we cannot make an alien conscious by accepting that it's conscious or non-conscious, right? Yeah, so that, that creates a kind of... Um, 
there's at least a possible bridge there to, for us to reconcile our morality with our common sense, perhaps. It's funny. I was going to go the other way and say that I'm I'm more inclined towards crazyism in morality, in moral philosophy, than in metaphysics, because moral questions are more like questions about our preferences um, than they are questions about how does the world work, um, what is true, and. And I think there's a stronger case that our preferences didn't evolve to be internally consistent um, than, than the case you could make about how does the world work questions not making sense inherently. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> I, could, I could kind of see that going either way. Um, I, on, the, on the metaphysics of mind case, right, I think there's a case from analogy to the sciences. And then there's a case from there's the empirical case the kind of market-based empirical case that one hasn't been developed yet. And so, and you think that one would be developed if one were available to be developed, right? And those, neither of those is completely um, decisive, I think, but uh, those two considerations along with these kinds of, as we're saying, a priori evolutionary considerations, combine all that together, I think there's a fairly, uh, there's a good reason to have fairly high credence in, in crazyism. Yeah. Okay, well, we keep alluding to all these crazy-sounding metaphysical <laughs> theories. Let's finally, let's finally give an example of, of one for our listeners. Right. Well, one that I've been working on uh, quite a bit. It's not the only one, um, but it uh, definitely has some shock value for some people, at least, or I think maybe most people, but not everyone, is the idea that the United States is literally phenomenally conscious. <laughs> and what's the case for that? So most theories of mind, most material, most Contemporary philosophers of mind are either materialists or pretty close to materialists, like uh, David Chalmers has a kind of dualism that's got a lot of structural similarities to materialism uh, for the issue in question. Mm -hmm. uh, most philosophers of mind think that what's necessary for mentality is something like complex information processing, uh, sophisticated responsiveness to the environment, maybe a kind of evolutionary embeddedness in a historical environment that gives your actions and reactions meaning and function and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at the kinds of features that uh, most philosophers of mind describe as characteristic of uh, maybe sufficient for the existence of consciousness in an entity, it looks like the United States or any country, I choose the United States, uh, because I think it's perhaps the best case country for this, but um, uh, has those features. So uh, the United States, so what I want you to do is kind of imagine the United States the way a planet-sized alien might imagine the United States, right? So think of all the individual people in the United States as something like cells in your body, right? They trade information. They... As, uh, as an entity, it does things like, you know, it invades Iraq. It sends, it sends this kind of army-like pseudopod <laughs> out to invade another country, right? And, that, uh, and in doing so, it's responsive to sensory input, right? It doesn't hit the mountain. It goes around the mountain, right? It hunts down Saddam Hussein or whoever, right? The United States, as a collective entity, imports goods, exports goods, develops its environment, uh, monitors space for asteroids, speaks collectively as a group. It's got lots of... The citizens of the United States trade huge amounts of information with each other. Uh, the United States represents itself in certain ways, self-represents, right? It monitors its own states. It monitors how many people it has. It monitors unemployment rate, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying the United States is, in fact, literally phenomenally conscious, although I think it's possible that it is. The The first point that I want to make here is that if you look at what most philosophers of mind say about what makes something a being with mentality and consciousness, and then you just apply those criteria straightforwardly to the case of the United States, it looks like the United States meets those criteria. Yeah. And I, I imagine that you could, you could make this uh, thought experiment even more compelling to people who don't yet find it compelling by, uh, by asking them to imagine a country, maybe the United States, uh, that literally copies the processes that a human brain is going through uh, over the course of, say, an hour, um, but with humans playing the role of neurons and sending signals to each other the way neurons send signals. Um, and so it's the same, the same processes happening, the same 
uh, information being transferred in the same patterns, but, you know, by humans in physical space or, or you know, in sort of larger geographic space instead of neurons. But same, the same pattern. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So Ned Block has an example, something like this. Uh, right. So you could imagine that scenario. And then I think people have different, I mean, the brain has like 80 billion neurons. Yeah. Right? So it's, you'd have to take more sure. than any one nation. Right. But it's not it's like not logically impossible many to imagine. Of magnitude more. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, it would be a lot slower than the brain, you know, probably realistically. Um, now, what kinds of intuitions do we have about what would happen in that kind of case, right? The way when Bloch sets up this kind of case, he doesn't do it actually exactly with neurons. He does it with functional states, but I guess I think it's a similar idea, right? Is he kind of invites the reader to think, well, it's, you know, absurd to think that, you know, that entity constituted of people trading information with each other would have a higher level of conscious experience in addition to the conscious experience of all the individuals constituting it. Um, so if he's right uh, that, well, I think he's right that that's somewhat contrary to common sense. I think it's even more contrary to common sense. It's even a sharper violation of common sense to say that the actual United States as it exists right now, without further messing around, uh, has a stream of experience too. Right, so there, you can have strengths of violation and, and non-violation. Right, right. Sense. Yeah, and there was one, I forget who said this, but there was one attempt to uh, approach this question from a different angle that said, okay, imagine that we replace the neurons in your brain gradually, you know, piece by piece with these little robots that, that are programmed to do the same things that neurons do, to take in the same inputs and, and produce outputs in the same, uh, according to the same rules, and uh, and so, you know, gradually your nons get replaced by these robots. Fine. Um, so most people, I think, would still say, OK, yeah, I'd still be conscious, even though I, I have robots instead of neurons doing the processing. And then this person said, well, uh, the neuron, the, the robots themselves could not possibly be conscious um, because if they were, then the whole system would stop being conscious. And that doesn't seem very intuitive to me like as long as the as long as the robots are doing their job properly why can't they be conscious without my own consciousness ceasing to exist but this is just the chi- the you know u.s or chinese or you know giant 80 billion person nat- nation thought experiment but on a much smaller scale but it's the same thing right yeah so some people think for some reason that consciousnesses can't nest in each other that you couldn't have consciousness in at two levels of organization at once, right? At the lower level and at the higher level at the same time. Um, and that principle has been put forward by a few people. Uh, Giulio Tononi uh, has defended it. Uh, uh, Francois Kammerer recently uh, has defended it. And I think part of what they want to do is avoid, they see the possible implication uh, of, say, standard th- theories of consciousness for, for group-level consciousness of entities like the United States, right? And they they want to avoid that conclusion. And so they introduced this, I think, as a means to avoid that conclusion. But introducing it as a means to avoid that conclusion, if it really is justified in that way, and I don't think it's totally clear how it's justified, right? But if it's justified because you want to avoid that conclusion, then what you're doing is you're engaging in a philosophical method that takes, as a fixed point, groups like the United States couldn't be conscious. And then I guess kind of one of the questions that I ask about that is, how do you know that, right? This is, it's contrary to common sense, right? But if if what we've been saying earlier is correct, then common sense might not be a very good guide to these kinds of issues. So why should we take that particular violation of common sense as an evidential fixed point? Right, right. I mean, at the least, it seems clear that, uh, well, it seems pretty likely that we, ha- we have to choose between counterintuitive conclusions, whether that's consciousnesses can't nest or a country couldn't be conscious. Uh, I mean, it's possible there's a logical, you know, loophole that I'm missing or something. But uh, I mean, in all these cases, it's possible. But this is, I think, a, a good example of where crazyism seems, seems pretty well supported. Right. And, you know, and if you look at nesting 
people who have what I call anti-nesting principles, right, is views on which consciousness can't nest. When you push on those principles, they tend to have their own counterintuitive consequences, right? So again, Ned Block has uh, uh, suggested, for example, right, if it were possible, this is really far-fetched, right, but it's a clean, simple example, right? If it were possible for there to be, be very tiny beings who uh, acted out the role of one neuron, Right, and you inhaled one; it became part of your brain. You would lose your consciousness as a result, and that seems uh, that seems unintuitive. I mean, maybe it's true, right? We're not. I'm not sure what role intuition should play in this, right? But it's not. Not all the intuitions are on the same side in this issue. Or right, another kind of uh, group consciousness intuitive kind of case, I think, is you can imagine a science fiction case where we were visited by beings who looked like woolly mammoths, right, and who behaved in intelligent linguistic ways. Maybe they're a little slower paced than we are. Maybe they, it takes 10 times as long for them to say anything as it takes for us, right? But that doesn't seem like that big a deal, right? And it turns out, perhaps, uh, in the scenario, that their mentality is instantiated by 100 million insects that they contain in their heads and their humps, right? Each in- insect has a tiny little set of sensory organs, right, and its own insect-like intelligence, right? In that case, it might be intuitive to think, well, the insects have insect-level consciousness, but also these beings who maybe you can imagine in a science fiction story in which you've already established social relationships with them. Maybe some people, maybe there's been you know cross-species marriage, <laughs> right? You know, it would be, it's the, you know, there would be definitely under certain circumstances there'd be a uh, would seem highly chauvinistic to say no, those beings can't be conscious because they're constituted by their 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 mentality is instantiated by the interaction of insects that's just, rather than That's just anti-insectism right there. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this, well, but there, <laughs> so there is actually another way around, uh, like a, a way out of this rock and a hard place a dilemma that I didn't mention, which is just, you could say, no, consciousness is, can only uh, be instantiated on a, a brain. It can only, you know, have, uh, have like uh, biological substrates and not other substrates. Which feels unintuitive right. to me, so, but not yeah. to some people, I think. Right. So, yeah, so, yeah, people do say stuff like that. And I guess I was kind of assuming the falsity yeah. of that and what I was saying before. But that does get to the point that um, what feels like a violation of common sense varies between people. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we you, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, I've been interested in science fiction. Um, and actually, I think one of the wonderful lessons of science fiction is that, it's intuitive that consciousness and intelligence could be instantiated in a wide variety of beings, right? Once you think about the way science fiction authors have set up mentality fairly plausibly in a wide range of possible cases, then, you know, readers are drawn in to think of these beings as having mentality if they behave in sufficiently sophisticated ways and they exist in societies and they have kind of recognizable interactions and morality and cares and things like that. So I think anyone who would insist upon neurons specifically or something like that would be violating that aspect of common sense that's so nicely drawn out in the science fiction literature. We have a few minutes left and I think my top thread to close on would be whether the unreliability of common sense as a, a guide to these questions means that we like w- what should we do about that fact? Does that mean common sense doesn't apply to philosophical uh, reasoning? That seems too harsh. Like there are many many cases in which I think we need to be able to say, uh, you know, that seems absurd. Clearly, we must have gone wrong somewhere in our reasoning, right? Without because philosophy is just not. It, it's never going to be a purely logical, uh, deductive enterprise where you could just prove something the way you would prove it in math, right? So aren't we just going to have to use common sense a lot? Yes, I do think we have to use common sense. I think we're stuck with basically three unreliable tools um, that one is common sense or culturally given assumptions. Another is empirical methods. And another is appeal to kind of abstract virtues like simplicity. And I don't think, I guess what I think is the case about the metaphysics of mind in particular is that none of these tools is going to give you very solid answers. So we kind of have to rely on all of them. Now, there are some things that 
are have no basically no merit in ter- in terms of scientific uh, no scientific merit, no merit in terms of simplicity or elegance, no merit in terms of common sense, and right, and we can discard those, right? So, for example, here's a theory: on my on your 18th birthday, you get an immaterial soul for exactly 17 seconds. Right. This is like there's no scientific merit for this. There's no it violates common sense. There's no, it's completely inelegant. Right. So it's not like all theories are going to be equal. Right. What I think we're I think we're in an, a tricky epistemic situation where we have ver- various means of trying to figure th- these things out. But none of these means are very powerful. Um, but that doesn't mean that we kind of just left completely shrugging our shoulders. We can some theories have more plausibility than others. Uh, but I think we have to be. We left in a position of dubiety, right, where we can't resolve confidently upon any one theory or I think or even any broad class of theories like materialism. Well, that sounds like a very common sense thing to say. I, I can get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazyism is uh, not itself crazy. I yeah. think. Uh, perhaps it's bizarre. I'm not even sure about that. Let me just conclude mm-hmm. with one 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 thought about about this way of doing metaphysics as opposed to, to some other ways of doing metaphysics. I think most metaphysicians are interested in kind of resolving upon what they see as the one metaphysical truth, right? Here's materialism, it's right, and here's my version of it, and it's, here's why it's right, right? Or here's transcendental Kantian, transcendental idealism, and here's why this is the correct view. What I, the way that I'm approaching these issues, I think, is, uh, I think of it as disjunctive, right, in the sense of a disjunction is this or that or that or that. I'm more interested in opening possibilities that you might not have thought of or taken seriously before, like that there could be a stream of consciousness in the United States, um, that I am in closing the possibilities and resolving upon a single answer, right? I think uh, once we no longer think of common sense as a decisive criterion, even though it has some value as a criterion, and we start thinking about all the different possibilities that are out there, the a, a variety of bizarre and beautiful possibilities open up, uh, and I find that kind of exciting. We lose our moorings a little bit, uh, and the world seems to me kind of more wonderful and amazing and incomprehensible and beautiful once you once you uh, see the weakness of the presuppositions that you might have had entering uh, into doing philosophy. Well said. All right. Well, let's wrap up this section of the podcast, and we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking Pick. Welcome back. Every episode, we invite our guests to introduce the rationally speaking pick of the episode. That's a book or article or website or something that has influenced his or her thinking in an interesting way. So, Eric, what's your pick for today's episode? My pick is Borges' Labyrinths. Oh, excellent. Uh, tell us a little bit about that book. So that was a favorite book of mine uh, as a college student and still uh, is a favorite. It's a collection of his uh most philosophically interesting short stories um, gathered and translated into English. Um, And it's full of ideas about infinitude and uh, idealism in the metaphysical sense of idealism, uh, where a mentality is fundamental to the universe, uh, full of paradox and weirdness. And I guess uh, also for me, kind of a little bit of a schooling in how you can write um, philosophy, science fictionally or speculatively, uh, or how you can uh, do speculative fiction philosophically. Hmm. I remember, I think it was in Labyrinths, I was reading a poetic passage about a different civilization that just had a totally different ontology. Like they divided up the world in a totally different way that seemed very arbitrary, where like a, there was a whole category of, you know, things that had five legs or things that, I don't know, it was weirder than that. It's hard to be weird on on the spot. Yes, Borges' taxonomy of, I'm not sure if that's in Labyrinths or not, but yes, he's got this wonderful taxonomy of animals, and it's like 14 different categories that make no sense in relationship to each other. One of them is things that, when viewed from a distance, look like flies. Another (laughs) one is animals, this is taxonomy of animals, animals that belong to the king. Another one is... uh, 
it's it's so hard to remember because the categories are so it was weird. So weird and seemingly arbitrary. And it yes. it was first of all, it was sort of whimsical and poetic and absurdist in a in a pleasing way. But it yes. also made you reflect on the fact that we have there's a reason that the the like the the way that we categorize the world, the categories of animals we come up with, uh, or you know, fruits or vegetables or people, etc. Could be seen as equally arbitrary for a totally different creature with different, you know, needs and ways of interacting with the world. Right. And there's a reason that we came up with, we developed the taxonomies that we use. Yes. Um, but it was just an, a very nice sort of poetic way to make that point, I thought. Yes, Borges is, you know, so I was talking at the end of the episode about how, you know, I think metaphysics can be kind of bizarre and beautiful once you let go of, uh, you know, insistence upon common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and Borges is just he's an example of someone whose thinking is bizarre and beautiful. It's, uh, it's just uh, really, to me, in an amazing, an amazing book. It's like uh, just bends your mind and makes you think about things yeah. in, in new ways. Yeah. So, yeah, I really love that book. Great. Well, we'll link to Borges as well as to your blog. And I guess to the craziest metaphysics of mind would be a good Thing to link to as well, uh, which yeah, is a paper right. that you wrote on crazyism and metaphysics of mind. Uh, right, and maybe the USA Consciousness paper too, since I talked about that a little bit. Great, yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, okay. Eric, thanks so much for for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks for having me again. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>